There's a change happening in the way we live, the way we work, the way we spend our money and make our decisions. We are evolving to be more conscious in our actions in a way that serves the world and makes it a better place. Welcome to The Ethical Evolution. The Ethical Evolution podcast is brought to you by The Ethical Change Agency. I'm Bindi, CEO and founder, and I am honoured to bring you the stories of those who create change through paying it forward and giving back. Ethical business owners and holistic healers who are determined to create collective change in the world. Once we have a change in consciousness and through collective change, we can become one. There's a fine line between emotional awareness and spiritual awakening, and that is where Benji Scherer thrives as a mentor and teacher. Guiding people to emotional mastery, Benji bridges the gaps between psychology, spirituality, and philosophy. Those three realms are all intrinsically connected in his unique and yet intuitively and compellingly simple approach to self-love and emotional mastery. Growing up with a deep existential need for answers, his academic background in philosophy and world religions left him pessimistic at the soul level about our ultimate role in the universe and the purpose of life. It wasn't until after a dark night of the soul and a spiritual awakening of his own which led him to rediscover his true purpose and learn the skills, tools and techniques that he teaches clients today. His overall approach is about feelings first, referring to the notion that we can master our emotions directly without the need for deep intellectual analysis, ultra-spiritual practices or pharmaceutical medications. He teaches people how to connect directly with the emotions and sensations of their body without fear, guilt or shame and to allow these feelings to run through them so that they can be truly released. Benji and I could have talked all day as we had yet found another kindred soul connection who understood us at our core. I hope you get some gold out of this time that we spent together. Welcome Benji to the Ethical Evolution. Hey, Bindi. It's so nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm so excited to have you here. Now, you're coming to us all the way from Montreal, Canada, which is super exciting for us uh, this morning. Now, for those who don't know who you are, can you tell us who you are and what you do? Okay. Um, my name is Benji, and I'm from Montreal, as you said. And <laughs> as for what I do, um, you know, finding titles is always a little bit tricky. I think the title, if I'm going to give myself one that I like the most, is I'm an emotional trainer. So the same way that you hire a physical trainer to help you train your physical body, I help people train their emotions. I teach really the essential emotional skills that society has failed to give us. How to actually feel and deal with our emotions, how to confront all of the pain and trauma that's inside of us that we spend our lives building walls around and avoiding. And I teach people how to do this without the need to analyze and dissect all of the horrible things that ever happened to us and to, to try and track down all of the trauma and figure out all the psychological logic behind everything. It's really about building emotional muscle and learning how to reconnect our conscious mind to our emotions. 
Amazing. Wow. Where have you been all this time? <laughs> <laughs> I've, that is an interesting question. Sorry, I just realized my window is open. You're One right. second. So, where have I been all this time? It's, it's actually an interesting question of just how I ended up doing this kind of work because my whole life, I genuinely felt like I was here to do something. I knew, some part of me knew that this is what I was here to do. Now, it didn't know this specifically. It didn't know emotional wellness and, and all of that, but it knew that I knew that I was here to teach about life in some way. And another really interesting aspect is that like my whole life, I, I, I always felt like I was still waiting to become something. Mm -hmm. Like I wasn't me yet. And I didn't know exactly what that meant. I didn't know exactly what I was moving towards, but I knew that something was inside of me that needed to come out eventually. And then around the age of 27, I started this journey, not knowing that I had started this journey until about like 31 where now it started becoming clear that I was on a bit of a spiritual awakening and an inner healing journey. And now I just turned 35 and I feel like I'm finally that person. Now, I wish that I could have been that person at 20 <laughs> years old because getting, getting <laughs> old is, is always a tough, exactly, exactly is always a tough thing. But where have I been? I have been becoming. I've been experiencing what life needed to show me so that I could bring out this core nugget, this blueprint of who I am that I came here to share with people. Yeah, and I think that's something that uh, you and I have definitely got in common, Benji, is that, you know, we're here for a reason. We're here for a purpose. We're here to make a difference. And, um, you know, to to be able to have that impact for people, like that has got to be the most rewarding thing, right? Yeah, it's, it's absolutely, it's amazing. And every once in a while, I just stop and I look at what I'm doing and just, wow, like, how mm. did this happen? And I think the most amazing thing on my end is how the fact that, like, that inner feeling that I had my whole life has come to fruition proves to me certain things about the universe mm. that now allows me to relax into life and know that like, look, my whole life, I felt like I was here for a purpose and now I have that purpose. Mm. That must mean that my inner being really does know something. And it's really opened up a lot of sort of magical um, kind of revelations about life and about yeah. the universe. And, you know... <laughs> As you were talking about, you know, being an emotional trainer, um, there's so many people um, nowadays that are becoming more awake and aware and enlightened, um, but there's a lot of people who aren't as well. Um, so, uh, you know, we get, we get conditioned to believe that emo emotions are something we should be afraid of or that we should lock away, hide, um, not let out, um, particularly anything that's sad or traumatic or hurtful um, or anything that really upsets us. And, you know, we're human. We're meant to feel emotions. We're meant to live through them. That's that's yeah. what makes us us. And, yeah. I mean, how do you work people through, um, you know, those, those walls that they put up um, that keep them locked away for so long? 
ooh, well, how we do it? Okay, I mean, that's that's a big question because mm. in theory, like everything that I teach needs to be <laughs> encapsulated into an answer. But um, let, let me start it off this way. I think that most of us have been under a huge fallacy of what we consider to be emotional strength. Mm. So... Because our focus has been on the 3D world in terms of, you know, success and friends and sex and money, career, all of these things outside of us, we were all under the impression that those were the goals that we need to be moving towards in life. And what we came to know as emotional strength was the ability to put aside your emotions, You know, if you think of a CEO or a businessman or a soldier even of like, if you want to be the strongest person and the best version of yourself, you need to be able to put aside your emotions and go and do your job. You need to be able to put aside your emotions and step into war. You need to be able to put aside your emotions and walk into a boardroom and put everything else aside. And we considered that that was what emotional strength was, being able to lock your emotions up in a box. And that is not at all what strength is. You know, physical strength is not about the ability to avoid lifting weights. Mm. It's about the ability to lift the heaviest weight. So emotional strength is about the ability to confront, feel, heal, release, and express your emotions. So the way that we do this, the way that I help people with this is... By slowly and incrementally showing them why you don't have to run from these things Mm -hmm. and showing them what to do with negative emotions when they come up on their own. Because in general, when the negative feelings come up, we all try to survive them or avoid them or push them away or do whatever we can to just kind of make it through to the other end of the storm without feeling them. And what's happening in those moments is your heart is experiencing a lot of pain. There's your head, your heart, and your gut, the way that I explain it, which is your thoughts, your emotions, and your sensations. So in these moments of, of trauma and pain, your heart is experiencing a lot of emotion that especially with the way that we've conditioned ourselves to think and to act, your brain doesn't know what to do with it. Your heart doesn't even know what to do with it. So in those moments, that's when your brain clicks on and goes, whoa, I am not enjoying this experience. I don't know what to do with these emotions. So I'm going to tell my heart, look, hold on to these things. Shut this down. I can't process the emotions that you're sending me right now. And I'm not safe to process the emotions right now. Because in a moment of actual trauma or abuse or whatever it is, and it could be even light trauma, just, you know, your parents telling you you're not good enough kind of thing. In those moments, we're not actually safe to express and release our emotions. In those times when you're at school and your friends are making fun of you kind of thing, if you cry or express to them like, ooh, this is hurting my feelings... In general, it's going to get you mocked or teased or whatever even more. So in those moments, we are genuinely not safe to feel and heal and release our emotions. So we develop these defense mechanisms where your brain clicks on and says, whoa, I'm not enjoying this experience. So it says to your heart, okay, hold on to these emotions. I'm going to come back later and deal with them when we are safe, which seems like a perfectly reasonable thing to do. And Mm. in a moment of trauma... 
it is kind of the best thing that we can do because you do, in fact, need to survive that. The big problem is that we don't realize that we're doing that. Mm. And we don't realize that we just made this bargain with our heart of hold on to this and I'll come back and deal with it later. So we never do come back around and deal with it later, which means that it's stuck inside there. And every once in a while, your heart will send up this past pain and it will say, hey, you promised me that you were going to deal with this when you were safe. But what that feels like is like if you were experiencing fear in that initial moment of trauma, then sometime, you know, you're going to be walking through your day and someone else kind of triggers that and up comes fear. And because you don't understand any of this, because you don't realize that bargain that you made with your heart, and because you don't realize that this moment of fear when you're not actually in danger has nothing to do with what you're experiencing now, it has to do with past pain, you see this experience as a new moment of fear and a new moment of pain that you still don't know how to deal with. So your heart is sending up this past pain and it's saying, hey, are you ready to deal with this? And your brain still says, nope. Sorry, I'm not ready to feel this, so stuff it back down. And here, take this new moment of pain that I don't know how to deal with and add it to the pile. Now, we've been doing this for so long that we've completely forgotten where this all started from. We've completely forgotten that we've been doing this, and there's a lifetime's worth of unresolved pain and trauma inside of all of us. So the way that I like to describe it for people is imagine that when you were really young, you were trained that sweating was impolite, was rude, was dangerous, was going to get you mocked, and it was going to lead to pain. So you managed to train yourself never to sweat. But the thing is, your body needs to sweat. This is how it keeps itself healthy. When your body temperature rises and when your body is creating certain toxins as a result of you moving your body a lot, it needs to sweat. Similarly, there are certain emotional responses and reactions that we need to have to keep ourselves emotionally healthy. So if you manage to work out and not sweat, you will die, mm -hmm. literally. You will boil alive from the inside out. There's actually a medical condition called anhydrosis, which is the inability to sweat. And people who suffer from anhydrosis often die of heat stroke because their body can't deal with what they're putting themselves through. And that is exactly what we've been doing with our emotional bodies. So our emotional bodies have some basic healing mechanisms, these evolutionarily implemented ways of dealing with pain. Sometimes we need to scream. Sometimes we need to cry. Sometimes we need to shake. Sometimes we need to laugh. Sometimes we need to express ourselves. But every time that we encountered a moment of trauma or a moment of emotional pain when we weren't safe to do one of those things, we started developing these defense mechanisms that forced us or prevented us from doing these things. So it's like your sweat glands are currently disconnected from your pores. Mm. So your sweat glands are still doing their job. They're still producing sweat every time you go out running and every time that you're in the sun. But that sweat, like it gets pumped out of your sweat glands and it can't reach your skin. 
Mm. It can't reach your pores, so it's just circling all around inside of you, and it will find wherever it can to bury itself. And it's flowing throughout your body, you know, just filling you up with toxic stuff that you can't deal with. And our goal is to reconnect the sweat glands to the pores. And that's why we don't need to analyze. We don't need to dissect. We just need to learn how to feel our emotions again without running from them. And as we do that, those 10,000 liters worth of unresolved sweat inside of us can slowly start coming out. And as every liter of sweat slowly comes out, we get to replace that with a liter of good and healthy cells. Obviously, let's not get lost in the metaphor here because <laughs> it is just a metaphor. But that's what we need to do with our emotions. We've trained ourselves not to feel them, not to express them, not to connect with them. And we spend our lifetimes running away from them, not realizing that the emotions that we're running from can't actually hurt us. Mm. But you know what does hurt us? Running from them. Yep. All the time. Every time we avoid this, it is causing us more and more pain. So it's like we're running from the monster underneath our bed. But when you finally go and you look under the bed and the monster goes, hi, how are you doing? Mm. Like, oh, it, it was never going to hurt us in the first place. But when you live your life in fear of the monster under your bed, then you act a certain way and you look at life a certain way and you react a certain way. So the, um, the unpleasant emotions that we carry within us can't hurt us. But the defense mechanisms that we implement in order to avoid feeling them slowly destroy our lives until we can't form proper connections. We can't form relationships. We can't trust ourselves. We can't feel good about ourselves. And we completely lose track of who it is that we came to be. Yeah, we can be our own en own enemy or our greatest advocate, can't we? Like we get in our own way and hold ourselves back. Um, but on the other flip side, we can be our greatest hero too. So one thing that came up for me when you were talking was um, emotional intelligence. Um, it yep. seems to be the corporate buzzword of 2021 at the moment. Um, okay. And I, I have to say probably within the last two years I have – participated in an exercise where I've been asked to write down as many emotions as I've experienced in the last 24 hours that I could remember. Now, I know the first time I did this, I was really challenged because I was like, I don't know. I don't even know what I'm feeling. And the more in touch with yourself that you get and, and the things that you feel and recognize and acknowledge, you can be writing that stuff down for hours. But, um, what, I wanted to get your thoughts on emotional intelligence. I mean, from the point of view of understanding what your emotions are, acknowledging them, and understanding when's the appropriate time to, to actually use them. Hmm. Okay, well, that's, that's an interesting question. I think that even the way that emotional intelligence sometimes gets looked at these days is an over-intellectual sort of way of dealing with things. Mm. So... I think that, you know, when we're thinking about emotions and when we're trying to develop this, this concept of emotional intelligence or emotional awareness, I think that it needs to be a, kind of generically about emotions overall and about how, how we deal with emotions overall. So 
Like, for example, I, I was mentioning that I teach people that we don't need to analyze and dissect where this is all coming from. We don't need to understand each and every instance of each and every emotion and figure out the logic behind it. What we really need to understand is what are emotions and what is happening with them. So, like I said, I don't need to understand that in this moment, I'm repressing a specific emotion from this specific memory, from this specific time in my life that has this specific defense mechanism. I only need to understand the overall concept that, oh, right, I've trained myself not to feel negative emotions and the best thing that I can do for myself at any given time is allow myself to feel them. Mm. So the way that I look at it is your emotions are their own thing. We are multidimensional beings, both at the spiritual level, but also at the practical psychological level. Like if you take any main psychological theory, if we're talking about Freud, if we're talking about Jung, even if we're talking about Socrates, um, they all split the human psyche into three parts. You know, Freud talked about the id, the ego, and the superego, ego, and... Yeah. Um, Jung talked about the conscious, the subconscious and the superconscious. And Socrates split up the psyche into, he used the example of a chariot where there was the horse, the driver and the chariot itself, which sort of referred to the, your, your passions and your logic and your feelings. So every main theory splits up the human psyche into these three parts. And the way that I explained it was thoughts, emotions, sensations. Mm. And... I feel, I, I believe that thoughts, emotions, and sensations, these are the three elements of your experience of reality. There is nothing that you can experience in this world, in this body, that cannot be fit into one of those three categories. So when I'm speaking to you, you're hearing, you're getting the physical sensations of the audio that's hitting your ears, then that actual physical audio sensation gets translated through your brain into the meaning and the comprehension. That's your thoughts. And then maybe that creates certain emotions, happiness, sadness around it. There is nothing that we can experience that is not one of those three things. Mm. And we need to learn how to identify each of those as an independent experience so that we can end this subconscious cycle where each one is creating the other over and over and over and over and over and over. Because here's what happens. Let's say sometimes, you know, you, you go to sleep one night and you're feeling fine. Life is good. Everything happened. You had a good day. You've got no real worries. Then you wake up in the morning. And maybe when you wake up, you're feeling a little sadness. You're feeling a little anxiety. You're feeling a little frustration. Maybe it's just because you woke up at the wrong time in your sleep cycle. Maybe you had a bad dream. Maybe, maybe your body is doing this evolutionarily beneficial thing that I said before, where it's throwing up your old emotions for you to process. So there's no real reason. Nothing has changed in between the time when you went to sleep happy and you woke up a little frustrated or a little anxious. There is no real problem. Nothing has changed. But when you wake up feeling a little frustrated, feeling a little anxious, feeling a little sad, the instinctual thing for us to do like if you were to walk up to someone, if you were to walk up to someone you loved right now and said, oh, I'm feeling really sad today. The obvious instinctual response would be, why? Mm. Why are you feeling sad today? 
it's normal, it makes sense, but here's what happens when someone asks you why, and this is what your brain is doing, even if someone doesn't ask you why, this is what you're doing all the time, all of us are doing, where your brain's job is to attach this emotion to something. Because we've trained ourselves not to feel and we've trained ourselves to try and focus on the 3D world and accomplish these external goals and all that sort of thing. So your brain's job, because it desperately wants to stay in control of this scenario, is to find something to attach this emotion to. Like, ooh, I, I don't like this feeling and it must be being caused by something. Mm. So let's look for the cause. And we've only ever learned to look for the cause outside of us. So your brain clicks into action and it goes, ooh, negative emotions. I know what to do with negative emotions. I'm going to look outside of myself and I'm going to find where this is coming from. Except you and I already know in this conversation, it's not coming from the outside. It's coming from the inside. Mm. But... Your brain clicks on and it does this job and it says, okay, where is this pain coming from? And so it's going to look at your relationships and your friendships. It's going to look at your finances and your job. It's going to look at the weather. It's going to look at whatever. It's going to find something to attach this emotion to. And now there's a problem. There wasn't a problem a moment ago, but now your brain has decided that, oh, you know what? I don't have enough money in my bank and that's where this anxiety is coming from. And now you have this problem to mull over. So now you're going to start thinking of like, okay, well, how do I get more money? How do I get a better job? How do I blah, 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 blah. Now all of these things are cycling around. Now those cycling thoughts create that that turning feeling in the pit of your stomach or that tightness in your chest or get you to start shaking your legs. So your thoughts now create these sensations. And those sensations trick your heart into thinking that, oh, oh, oh there's, there's a reason to be afraid right now. So those sensations create more emotions. Now your emotions need to be explained and justified again. So your brain clicks on and starts looking for a reason. And that creates more sensations, more emotions, thoughts, emotions, sensations, thoughts, emotions, sensations, around and around and around we go. So to me, emotional intelligence is the ability to notice and observe your emotions directly mm. without needing to put this grand label on where is it all coming from. It's, it's, like, it's like noticing the weather. Sometimes it's raining. That's all there is to it. Yeah. And if when it's raining you have this habit of like, oh, I better figure out why it's raining, where this <laughs> rain is coming from, and how I'm going to make it stop raining. Oh my God, you're going to live your life in so much stress every single day. But if you have the ability to wake up and look out the window and go, oh, it's raining. Okay, I'm going to stay inside today and watch a movie. Mm. Then you're going to wait for it like you're going to be able to enjoy the rain as much as possible and wait for it to pass. And I think that that's what emotional intelligence is, to be able to recognize that like, oh, I'm feeling sad right now. And since I can notice and observe that I'm feeling sad right now, I can understand that my thoughts are being manipulated. So if I'm feeling sad and I start getting frustrated at the world around me, oh, right, these things that I'm getting frustrated at, they're not real. Mm. They're just my brain trying to translate this emotion into something that it can understand because it doesn't like not being in control. Absolutely. And, you know, in the work that you do with people, um, no doubt it would come up that, you know, people are afraid of certain emotions. 
um, you know, like um, they they don't want to be sad, they don't want to be, you know, upset. Um, and it's a conversation I have a lot where, um, you know, there's that contrast in life. You can't have one without the other. And, um, you know, there's a lot of people who think they've got to be happy all the time. But, you know, um, that's that's not that's not reality. Um, do you find that a lot when you work with your clients? Um, absolutely. I mean, for the most part, the people that end up really working with me more directly are the ones who are ready to finally confront this stuff. Mm. But yeah, one of the very first things that I need to teach people when we're doing this and in my course is that there are always going to be ups and downs Mm. that you cannot try and resist the emotional storm. So when these things come up, you can't, you, you can't try and avoid them, but Overall, what happens is that we are stuck in low energies a lot of the time because all of this stuff is is trapped inside of us. And the more that we learn to turn on that valve and allow the negative emotions to finally run through us, and the more that we develop this emotional intelligence where we can feel our feelings for what they are, the more that we raise our overall range of emotions. So you do start experiencing sadness a little less or anger a little less. It never completely goes away, but when you learn how to observe and feel them directly, then you learn to let go of a little bit. And every time you let go of some heavy emotions, it's kind of like a hot air balloon rising a little bit higher in the sky. So the way that I explain it to people is as we go through this healing journey, There are always going to be ups and downs. As you mentioned, you are never going to stay in joy and bliss and enlightenment every moment of every day. But what we're hoping for, what we expect in this emotional healing journey is a constant upwards trend. It's like a stock price. You know, Mm. a stock price never goes from zero to a thousand. It goes up and down and up and down and up and down a thousand times a day. And overall, we're looking for that upwards trend. So in the long run, like... As you mentioned, there's, there's always ups and downs. Even I don't feel happy and joy every single day. But what is my worst day now compared to what my worst day was five years ago? Oh, my God, it's nowhere near. Like my worst day now is practically where my best day was yeah. five years ago. Yeah. So we do get to keep rising up and we don't need to keep falling down into those super low places. Um. But we do need to recognize that, yeah, not every day is going to be the absolute best. And I think that there are certain stable emotions that we should be aiming for. Or, you know, to put it mostly, like, our goal is to live at the average vibration of willingness, reason, and love, Mm -hmm. or willingness, acceptance, and love, let's say. You might know, or some of your viewers might know, there's the scale of consciousness that was developed by David Hawkins. Um, I'm not sure when. I should look up the date because I bring this up a lot of times. (laughs) But at the bottom of this scale of consciousness, scale of emotions, if you want to look at it like that, the very bottom is fear, doubt, guilt, and shame. At the very top is love, joy, bliss, and enlightenment. Now, joy and bliss and enlightenment for those of us who are actually living lives, you know, in the modern Western world and engaging with society in any sense, they're not exactly sustainable vibrations. 
They're vibrations that we get to experience here and there, but you can't be living in joy and bliss every day. You certainly can't be living in enlightenment every day. I've had, you know, brief moments of actually being in that like ultimate state of enlightenment consciousness Mm. and you are so disconnected from society. Like you do not want to participate in anything. So willingness, acceptance, and love, that is, those are the sort of like average vibrations that we should be aiming for. So most people, until some sort of awakening or inner healing or whatever they're going through, they're living their lives around shame, around fear. That's their sort of average emotional vibration. And we have these brief moments of respite where we get to experience love or experience joy or experience acceptance. Oftentimes, people who are living in fear need drugs or alcohol to experience that for one brief moment. But especially when we need to turn to, um, you know, drugs or alcohol or stuff like that to experience it, it's not sustainable. Mm. We can't stay there. So our goal is to release all of the heavy emotions that are keeping us anchored in fear and doubt and guilt and shame so that we can raise our average emotion to willingness, acceptance, and love. And when your average is at willingness, acceptance, and love, then yeah, you're going to dip down into fear and sadness every once in a while, and you're going to rise up into joy and bliss and enlightenment every once in a while, but you're always going to find stability back in that place. Mm. And the more that you learn to release fear, the more that you can stay there, the easier life gets, and the less that you will get dragged down into those lower emotions. Absolutely. And, and, you know, uh, Pretty much what you're saying there is, you know, healing is not linear. Um, you know, we're, we're always going to have those ups and downs and, yeah, it's about finding that balance. And I know I know for me um, in the last couple of years, um, once you sort of start to let go of all that stuff that you've hung on to for years, you do feel lighter. You do, you know, like you, your whole energy changes. Um, and energetically we hang on to that stuff which then physically – manifest different things as well so um you know once you can let go of that it can change your entire life so it's it's almost like you're reborn once you let let go of all this stuff so um you know looking at the strategies um that you put in place um and and the the content that you create um I tapped into some of the stuff that you shared with me uh particularly around your meditations and obviously you've got your book as well do you want to tell us about your book Sure. Um, my, I've actually got two books, but the main one, the, main one uh, yeah. the first one that people should start with is called Feelings First Shadow Work, A Simple Approach to Self-Love and Emotional Mastery. Um, and people can get that on Amazon or on Barnes and Nobles. The audio book is available also. I've got, um, my website where they can buy it for free, uh, not for free, where they can buy <laughs> it and get access to the meditations that you were just talking about and all that. And, you know, hopefully the people by now listening can by now understand why it's called Feelings First Shadow Work, because it's all about just learning how to reconnect with our emotions. That's all that matters. And shadow work is the way that I like to describe it. It's the process of learning what to do with negative emotions when they're stuck inside of you or when they come up so that you can either release the ones that are already stuck inside of you or deal with the ones that are coming up. It's about no longer running from those things that we've spent our lives being afraid of. You know, like, as I mentioned, it's like the monster under your bed. If you spend your life afraid of your shadow, 
you'll be in pain every moment of every day because you literally cannot run from your shadow. Mm. So that's what shadow work is. It's learning how to finally stop running from this stuff. And the book, um, it's, it's kind of, you know, an overview of all of the stuff I teach. And I think one of the really interesting things of it, because we were talking about, you know, this feeling that we had inside of us and how it all just kind of happened. Um, I think one of the really interesting things is my course and my books, I can pretty much say were channeled through me. Like these books, I wrote both of the books in a month Mm. and I had, I was like 30 or 40 pages into the first book before I even decided like, oh, I'm going to write a book. They just kind of started pouring out of me and they just, they were so natural and they came out just so perfectly, I think. Um, So they've been out for about four and a half months now. And the responses I've been getting have been so amazing and so beautiful. And my goal in them is to explain this stuff as simply as possible. That like an eight-year-old should be able to read my book and understand everything that I'm talking about because this isn't an intellectual approach. These are, like I said, the basic emotional tools and skills that everyone should be using every single day throughout their lives. They're things that we need to understand about ourselves. Like just this concept of self-love is is such a foundational and yet vague concept that once you come to understand what self-love is, it completely encapsulates everything that we should be doing in our lives. In fact, my spiritual awakening journey, my inner healing journey, was guided by three words, unconditional self-love. Mm-hmm. That is all that I had to guide me. But when you fully and truly understand the full depth of what those words mean, then it becomes impossible to harm yourself. It becomes impossible to harm others. It becomes impossible not to live your life from a place of service and well-being and, you know, trying to help people and trying to love because anything that is less than, than love to you or to others is hurting yourself. I like to explain to people that, like, someone who truly loves themselves cannot be cruel to other people. Mm. It's absolutely impossible because we are naturally empathic at our cores. We naturally feel the pain of others around us. We naturally do not want to cause pain to anything around us. And it is only through these defense mechanisms that we've developed over our years and through this ego and selfishness about us that we've put up this wall between me and you such that you can even be cruel to others in any sense of the word. But the more that you learn how to live in this place of unconditional self-love, the more that being anything other than kind to everyone that you encounter just doesn't feel good. Mm. Now, I do want to put a sort of asterisk on that or a caveat to anyone who's listening to this that unconditional self-love, as I was just saying, does not in the slightest mean that you can be selfish. It doesn't mean that I prioritize myself and screw everyone else. You do have to... Like you have to be kind to others, but you also do have to put up boundaries against behavior that doesn't serve you. So unconditional self-love doesn't mean that you can be selfish, but it does mean that your own well-being 
has to come first. Because anything that you do where you're giving to others in a way that is harmful to you is only going to drain you and leave you with nothing left to give to the world. So if you want to be the best version of yourself to help the world and help other people and be as kind as possible, you need to make sure that you are emotionally safe and secure. And the more that you raise up your own emotional frequency, the more of an impact that you have on everyone around you, whether or not you're doing it intentionally. So you don't have to run a podcast where you tell people about these things. You don't have to write books and run a course. You just have to love yourself enough that you are no longer going to cause pain and harm to yourself and to others, and you can be a clerk at the grocery store and have an immense impact on people's lives just by being that one person in someone's day who is going to give them genuine, real, full kindness in a way that they don't get in the rest of their lives. That so is, you, you don't, yeah. yeah, that is such a good point. You know, like um, that's one thing that doesn't get talked about a lot either is is having those boundaries when it comes to, you know, being kind or, or actually self-care. I know, you know, the term um, self-care isn't selfish, um, is used a lot, but, you know, the, the, to have those boundaries around that and understand that, you know, it's also about what you will and won't accept and, and, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, that just gives further impact to what you're already doing. Yeah. It's just so but, important. So I think also something that people need to understand about this idea of putting up boundaries is it's, it's largely about how it's done. Mm. You know, there's a big difference between, you know, if you recognize a toxic element in your life, someone who's, you know, being toxic. And, and let me just give a quick description. The way that I like to describe toxic, because again, that's a word that's used and thrown around a lot that a lot of people don't understand. I like to describe it as anyone who either intentionally or unintentionally makes you feel bad about being yourself. Mm. That's it. You know, not about being cruel or being, but just like about truly expressing yourself. Anyone who, who makes you feel shame about the core of who you are as a person, usually as a result of, you know, their own trauma and their own pain, their inability to express themselves or to see you for the fullness of who you are. So when you notice and observe a toxic element or a toxic person in your life, there are two ways to deal with this. Option A is, screw you, you are so rude to me, you are so toxic, and I can't deal with this anymore, and you are an awful person, and look, I just, I don't want to live with you, I don't want to deal with you anymore, leave me alone. That's option A. <laughs> option B is to recognize that, look, as I was saying a moment ago, it is impossible to truly love yourself and be cruel to others, right? You understand that? It makes perfect sense. Yeah. If that's true for you, it's true for this other person as well. So when this person is being cruel to you, they are in pain. And it doesn't make sense to be angry at someone for being in pain. So option B is to compassionately and self-lovingly say, I'm sorry that I can't get through to you. I'm sorry that you're in pain or whatever it is. But look, I love myself too much to deal with this. And I, I hope, you know, I hope the best for both of us. Take care. So it's about the emotions that we allow ourselves to express and to succumb and to, you know, dive into when we are setting up those boundaries. If we allow ourselves to get triggered, 
and get angry and take out our anger on the person that's triggering us, then that's not healthy and we are cultivating fear and anger and judgment in ourselves. But when we can simply understand compassionately that this person is in pain when they're doing it to us, then that leads to two sort of, you know, on the one hand, either we can compassionately walk away and do so without creating more anger and fear and judgment and guilt and shame, or we will actually have that much more patience, that much more understanding, and we won't get triggered as much, and we might be able to help see this other person through. So everyone on this earth is doing what I like to call playing the anger game. Mm. We are all carrying this fear and doubt and guilt and shame and anger inside of us. And so when something happens in the world or in our lives, it triggers this fear, this anger inside of us. And the anger game is this anger comes up in me and I don't want to feel it and deal it and express it. So I'm going to shoot it outwards. I'm going to get angry at someone. I'm going to project it onto someone. Now, when I get angry at someone, that frequency of anger resonates with all of the anger that lives inside of them. So their anger starts coming to the surface, and their natural reaction is then to get angry back at me. And then that triggers more of my anger. So I get angry and give it back to them, and they give it back to me, and I give it back to them until our conversation ends, and then we both go our separate ways, and I go and get angry at someone else, and they go and get angry at someone else, and they play the anger game. And then that spreads out, and they play the anger game. And it's just this ripple effect Mm. of anger and fear and doubt and guilt and shame from everyone who is incapable of dealing with their own emotional pain. And all it takes... To end this cycle is for one person to learn how to stop playing. For one person to be able to receive your anger and to maintain this emotional intelligence, this compassionate awareness that if this person is getting angry at me, they're in pain. And there is no point in being angry at someone for being in pain. So they're going to give me their anger. And in that moment, we get to transmute that anger. So they give us anger and we allow that to run through it without it triggering our anger. And we get to give them back nothing but love. Now, When you stop playing the anger game and learn how to give love to someone who is getting angry at you, one of two things happens. Either they will slowly start relaxing because they're used to projecting their anger and getting a certain response from this. They're used to, like, they're only getting angry because they are defending themselves, whether or not they realize it. Them getting angry at you is this repellent energy that's making sure that your anger doesn't come to them. They're protecting themselves with all of these defense mechanisms that we developed. And when you don't get angry at them while they are getting angry at you, slowly, slowly, either consciously or subconsciously, they're going to start recognizing, oh, wow, I don't need to defend myself here. Here's one person that's, that's not playing the anger game with me. And they're going to slowly calm down until the point where you guys can have a real conversation. That's option A. Option B is they're going to flip out on you. (laughs) They're going to get so unbelievably angry at you because they are used to playing the anger game and you're not playing by the rules. (laughs) 
They want you to be angry at them. They don't, not consciously, but that's their reaction. Mm. It's like they're trying to play checkers and you're playing chess and like they don't know how to play with you anymore. So they're going to get even more angry and they're going to flip out and they're going to, you know, eventually walk away. And that is how toxic elements of our life naturally leave our world when we stop playing the anger game. So when we stop playing, those who are ready to heal and to learn and to follow us will sense that in Mm. that moment and they will have the option to follow us. And those who aren't ready will naturally remove themselves from our lives and our lives get better as a result of it. Yeah. Simple as that. (laughs) You know, as you were explaining that, I was like, oh my God, I have been through that exact same thing. Um, Years ago, like a number of years ago, I actually used to be quite angry myself. Um, And um, I was in this job where I had a boss who was also very angry. And um, so she um, made it her point to just pick at me as much as she could to fire me up. Anyway, over time, as I was healing, I realised that she was in pain and that she was just lashing out. So I just went, no, you know what, you're in pain, you need help, so I'm not going to fuel your fire. So I completely changed my tact and it changed our whole relationship um, to the point where I wasn't anxious and upset and, you know, going to work every day and I just went, you know what, I'm just going to do what i got to do and um, I'm not going to give her the bait. (laughs) So it changed everything. Like when you are conscious of that and you can willfully step into that space and, and own the fact that, you know, it's not you, it's them and they need to deal with it and you don't need to own it for them. Like that can change everything. Yeah. Yeah. I, I learned that lesson for the first time when I was about 15 and I was working in this coffee shop that was right on the edge of two parts of town. On the one hand, the, you know, kind of sketchy part of town. And on the other hand, the really rich, really nice kind of part of town. And so I ran the gamut of of people who are miserable in their own lives and dedicated to being upset and people who are really rich and, you know, (laughs) just looking like the, the sort of the single mothers with nothing to do in their day other than to complain. Mm. I started recognizing that there were certain people who had come into the coffee shop who were just dedicated to being upset. Mm. And at the beginning, I allowed that to really hurt me because I was still insecure So I needed to know that I was doing a good job. I needed to know that I was being appreciated or to put it as simply as possible, because this is all fear. I was worried about my job, Mm. you know, because here are these people that are complaining and every time someone complains, maybe I'm about to get fired. Maybe I'm about to get reprimanded. Whatever happens, I am afraid. And the more that I learned not to be afraid and the more that I, I started understanding that, look, here, look, here are these people that are absolutely dedicated to being upset. It has absolutely nothing to do with me. It has absolutely nothing to do with the cappuccino that I just served them. They're finding reasons to complain about it. But no matter what I do, it's either too hot, it's not hot enough. There's either too much foam, not enough foam. There's either too much chocolate, not enough chocolate. They are always going to find something to complain about. And eventually I recognized that it had nothing to do with the cappuccino itself, with my work, with my politeness, with my work ethic, anything at all. It was just them trying to play that anger game. And so I eventually realized, just as you did, that I don't need to allow 
their anger to become mine. Mm. I have two options. I can get defensive and I can get angry back at them or I can smile at them and laugh. At the time, I, I hadn't yet quite learned the level of compassion and self-love that I'm at. So there was a bit of, let's say, arrogance or ego about it. I chose to laugh at them. Not outwardly. I was doing my job properly. But I chose to, you know, I can, I can laugh at these people who are determined to be miserable. And I don't need to be miserable. You want to be miserable? Go ahead and be miserable. I'm choosing not to be. And so I started recognizing how, yeah, we're all just projecting our pain outwards. We're all just afraid. And it takes a lot of strength to be that one person who's not going to give in. Yeah, absolutely. Now, with the work that you do, um, what would you say is the biggest challenge that you face and how do you overcome it? Do you mean my personal challenge or what's the, the hardest thing about or like what's the biggest challenge in getting people to heal? In getting people to heal. Um, I think... I, I think the, the biggest challenge is that sometimes people have been in this for so long that they've completely given up hope. Mm. And that that's the only real challenge. And there's someone that I'm dealing with right now who it, it breaks my heart to, to see how much pain she's in. And I, I'm trying to, to break through that crack. But, you know, so many of us have been in these cycles for so long that we no longer believe that feeling better is at all possible. We've completely forgotten what it's like to feel. And the methods that I teach are so simple, so straightforward. Anyone can do them, and if you apply them, they work. That's all there is to it. But the people who show up hopeless, mm. it's tough to get through to them, and it's, it's heartbreaking at times. Um, but... I think that's the only real big challenge. I think there's that, the people who are hopeless or the people who are angry. Mm. So I can, like people who are anxious, who are scared, who are afraid, I can, I can help deal with them, no problem. Um, the people who show up angry, they're a little harder to get through to because they don't realize that they're doing this. But a lot of people are, and I'm saying like a, a lot of your listeners are probably going to resonate with this. Um, a lot of people are unintentionally and unknowingly defending their pain mm. instead of trying to overcome from it. They're trying to explain to me why they are justified in being angry, why they are right to be angry at this person who caused them pain. And they can give me all of the reasons in the world. They can explain to me, like someone can have done something horrible to you, really something horrible, genuine abuse, genuine trauma, and you're going to tell me, well, this is what they did to me. And so, of course, why, like, why are you telling me that I can't be angry at them? I'm right in being angry at them. And my response is, well, sure. You're, you're, you are justified in being angry at them. But do you want to be angry? Do you want to justify your anger? Do you want to overcome it? And they don't realize that they're justifying their anger. They think that anger feels good. You know, someone who experiences road rage, who like someone cuts them off in traffic and I'm going to honk the shit out of them and I'm going to drive up to them and I'm going to roll down my window and I'm going to flip them off. And like my best friend of 20 years, I brought this up to him once. Like he experiences this road rage kind of thing. And I'm like, does, does that feel good to you? And he genuinely believes that it does. 
He doesn't understand that this anger is corrosive to him and that, yeah, it feels good in the way that smoking a cigarette feels good or in the way that to someone who's depressed, cutting yourself feels good. It's not healthy. It's not conducive. It does not produce positive emotions. And it feels good only in the sense of like, it, it feels good in the same way that punching someone in the face feels good. Mm. But as we've been talking about, that's destroying yourself inside. You cannot punch someone in the face without causing harm to yourself internally. So the one of the biggest challenges is th these people who would rather be angry and be right than be happy. And they don't realize it because these defense mechanisms are so deeply embedded in their psyche. Yeah, and it's almost like um, we've become this age of outrage, haven't we? Like it's like if we can lash onto this thing that just makes us outraged at bloody everything, it's like, <laughs> you know, that we just attach ourselves to that and it's like it's this culture that we've sunk into and, you know, things like social media and the media have, have made that such a simple thing to do and p for people to adopt and if you can just disconnect from that, I think that is a really healthy thing. Absolutely. <laughs> now, Benji, um, I, I love asking this question and I can't wait to hear your answer. Okay. Can you define for me what ethical means to you? Ah, okay. So you and I had a bit of this discussion in advance a bit um, through email. So I think that ethics um, is really a human conception. Um, and what ethics comes down to is a certain agreed upon set of rules that we must decide in advance that we consider what is appropriate and what is not. Um, and a big topic that gets discussed in ethics classes is the notion of ethical relativism, that what is ethical in one society is completely unethical in another. Like in primitive societies, something like war or something like cannibalism even might be ethical because you're praising the gods. You know, I think that ethics is built upon the fundamental beliefs of a society. And those fundamental beliefs of a society are different throughout all societies. And that's what makes it a very human concept that, you know, we first need to decide what we all agree about the universe and what we all agree about life. And only then can we even begin to describe or define a set of rules that we can call ethical conduct. And those ethical rules might change throughout the years. They change from society to society. And they are absolutely never solid. It is impossible to, uh, to codify a, a vague concept like ethics, like justice, like happiness. This is why poets exist. Because in order to describe something like love, you can't go at it straightforward. You can't write down the list of rules for this is what love is. But the most brilliant poet in the world might be able to create this stream of words that might be completely nonsensical, but manages to evoke that feeling of love. So 
here we are in ethics classes and in universities and in schools and in life trying to debate back and forth about what is ethical, what is not ethical, and there is no end to that argument. We go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth between, you know, the main ethical theories and the main sort of viewpoints of, is it about what brings the most happiness? Is it about what rules should never be broken? Is it about what virtues are most important to us? And we go around and around in circles coming up with one example where in this example, oh my God, clearly the most amount of happiness is what's appropriate, right? Yeah, okay, we can all agree on that. But what about this example? This example is something that is such a rule that like, we definitely don't want to break that rule. Like, would murdering 10,000 people bring the most amount of happiness? That seems wrong because murder is wrong. So that rule. And then what about virtues? What, and we go around and around and around in circles. And... I started getting really frustrated with that in my ethical classes. So what I eventually came to think and to realize is ethics is, gonna, maybe I'm being a little strong here, but ethics is nonsense. There is no right versus wrong. What there is in my perception is love versus fear. That's it. That is the ultimate. Because the other thing is we, we never really know the consequences of our actions before we take them. Mm. Our brains like to think that they are in control. Our brains like to think that they can identify how this scenario is going to play out and choose the best action based on all this, but we absolutely can't. And all that we can really try to do is make sure that we are acting from this place of self-love. And when we do that, even if the outcome isn't what we thought it would be or what we wanted, at least we're cultivating that emotion of love inside of us and we're spreading that around. And that is how we can move towards what ethical behavior might be. But just by treating each other properly and well, by following this proper notion of love, where we are open, where we are vulnerable, where we're not acting based on this fear of what's going to happen to me if I truly express myself. So I think that the most ethical actions are the ones that are based in loving energy and that we can't really do much more than that. You know, we can't decide in advance which action is going to be the best, but we can decide what energies, what emotions are we allowing ourselves to cultivate inside of ourselves? And are we allowing, to put, uh, allowing ourselves to put out into this world? So to, to quote Nikola Tesla, who used to say, if you want to understand the secrets of the universe, think in terms of energy, frequency, and vibration. And I think that that's how we can be the most ethical. Think in terms of energy and vibration. What is the energy and the vibration of love? And our job, ethically speaking, is to bring as much love into this world as possible. And that's it. Benji, oh my gosh. <laughs> um, seriously, I have asked that question nearly a hundred times and my gosh, blew it out of the water. Like, seriously. And, you know, the crux of asking that question is that there's no right or wrong answer. You know, it's everyone's perspective and it all comes back to exactly what you've just said. Um, it all comes back to love. Whatever your decisions are, whatever you do in life, as long as they're seated and rooted in love, you can't go wrong. Yeah. Wow. 
you, you, you've lost me. You've lost me there for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I am, I'm, I'm honored. Yeah. <laughs> that, that is amazing. Now, I mean, you've got uh, your, your two books now and you've got yeah. your course, you've got your meditations. What, what else have you got coming up? What else are you working on? Um, I guess now, uh, so, so right now, I'm actually in the process of updating my course. So that's where a lot of my energy is going right now. I first created this course about two and a half years ago. And when I created it the first time, I was very much in the throes of my spiritual awakening. So I was coming at things from a very kind of not overly so, but a pretty spiritual uh, approach. I was, you know, we were talking about frequencies before. I was very much in that frequency of spirituality and pseudo-enlightenment at the time. So I, I, you know, recorded my course a certain way. And now after having taught this course for two and a half years and seeing the amazing impact that it's had on my clients, as well as being able to ground myself back in reality a little bit more, I'm going through the whole course and I'm re-recording absolutely everything so that it's, you know, course 2.0 and that it can touch people who are on the spiritual side of things and people who are completely not on it anyway. Because I'm on a big mission right now, personally, to find the line between spirituality, reality, and pseudoscience. Mm. I want to make sure that I am only teaching things that I can be certain of. You know, so I have my beliefs about spirituality and about who we are as multidimensional beings and all that, but I want to make sure that I'm only teaching things that are needed and relevant to this emotional healing journey and that I can know for certain. So, you know, there were things that, like I used to say in the course of... You know, when, when we experience spiritual awakening, we all cling on to some of these concepts. Um, I don't know off the top of my head right now, but like that, for example, your heart creates an electromagnetic field that extends three to five feet in every direction. I believe that. I understand it from a spiritual concept, but I don't actually think there have been any real studies that prove that conclusively scientifically. So in the first round of my course, I would refer to things like that to make a point. Now I'm trying to strip away everything that, that isn't confirmable and to be able to teach it from a very solid point of view. So that's where my energy is going right now. I'm just about halfway through updating the course. So anyone who's interested, you'd be getting the most updated, the most amazing. And also I have two and a half years worth of built confidence in this, that I've seen it work time and time again with people who had been in therapy for decades, people who had been suicidal for decades, people who had experienced more horrific trauma in, in their lives than I believed existed in mm. the modern world. So now I can re-record it, not from a place of, I'm going through a spiritual awakening and here, let me pour all of my heart out to you, but from, this stuff works. Yeah. Here's what you need to do. Here's the order. And so hopefully I'm going to finish that off in the next month or so. And then I think my focus is to do more of these kinds of things, to do mm. more podcasts, to do more speeches, seminars, to get the word out there as much as possible because I truly believe that I have a large role to play. You know, my goal is 10,000 lives changed through my course. Now, I've already touched more than 10,000 lives through my YouTube, through my books, through my posts and whatever, but my goal, my mission is 10,000 lives changed through this course. It's going to take me 20 years or so, but that's that's my mission. Well, we're all behind you in, in reaching those 10,000 people. And yeah, the, the world needs to know about you, Benji. So um, if people want to find out more about you and get in touch with you, where can they go? 
Uh, yeah, I would suggest, like most people, they can start with the book, Feelings First, Shadow Work. So BenjiSharerCoaching.com slash FF book. FF for Feelings First book. You can find out about it there. You can just search up Feelings First Shadow Work and find my book uh, on Amazon, on Barnes and Nobles, on Audible, on every major retailer. It's it's there. Um, or if you want to find out a bit more about my course, uh, then just BenjiSharerCoaching.com and you'll you'll find some information about that. I've also got a couple of webinars that are always available and you'll get access to them if you buy my book through my website or um, anyone who's listening to this who just wants to reach out to me and tell me what you're experiencing and then I can, I guess, guide you to what is most appropriate. Maybe it's my webinar, maybe it's my book, maybe it's my course, or maybe it's someone else entirely. Um, so anyone can feel free to reach out to me, B sharer, B S H E R E R at the right com. T H E R I G H T S O N. It's actually the right son is that's the name that I started operating under when I started because my name is Benjamin and Benjamin in Hebrew is Ben Yamin. Ben mm. is son. Yamin is right. It refers to the right hand of God. So the right son. That's not a message. I don't know what is. Yeah. <laughs> now, Benji, I've got the last big question for you. All right. What's the change you'd like to see in the world and how can we bring it to life? You know, I think that we've just been talking about this this whole time. It's a shift towards love. Mm. That's it. That's the, that's the change that we need to experience, a shift from all of us living in fear and in protection and defense mechanism mode and this kind of negative repellent energy because that's what we're doing. We're all like these magnets right now and we all have this repellent energy making sure that nothing can touch us because we're all afraid and we're all in pain. I think the grand shift that needs to happen is to flip that frequency into love and how to get there, it's as simple as just healing yourself. That's all there is to it. What I tell people, you know, others like you and me who feel like we are here for a purpose, who feel like we are light workers, if you want to use that phrase, is heal yourself and then show others the way. That's it. That is all that anyone needs to do in this life. Heal your emotions. That's it. Learn how to prioritize your emotional wellness over and above what you experience in the physical world. Primarily because if you learn how to feel happy inside of yourself, regardless of what you're experiencing, then your life is going to be better. You're going to enjoy your life more. So let's start with that. Learn how to live in love and the rest will happen on its own. And part of self love. Part of this inner healing that I teach people is learning how to reconnect with your intuition. Your heart knows more than your brain does. Your heart is connected to the flow of the universe and the flow of reality in ways that your brain cannot comprehend. And the more that you allow yourself to tap into your emotions, the more that you allow yourself to follow your intuition, the more that your destiny, your role, your mission will play itself out naturally. So I never at any point in my life sat down and decided to myself, hmm, I want to be an emotional wellness coach or I want to teach about life in these ways. I, I just worked on being myself 
and the rest just happened. I couldn't stop myself from writing these books. I couldn't stop myself from making this course because I was allowing my heart to guide me. Mm. And that's all that anyone needs to do. Tap back into your emotions, learn to live from love, and learn to follow it wherever it goes without fear. And the rest will happen on its own. Absolutely. And that's another theme uh, that I've seen, you know, through the hundreds of interviews I've done uh, for this show, uh, is that, you know, the change starts with us. And, you know, for those who can't see me, I've got the Be The Change shirt on. Um, But really, the change begins with us. Um, So once we can make the change within us, it just flows from there. So... Benji, I cannot thank you enough for being a part of the Ethical Evolution. It has been amazing. Well, I am truly honoured to be here with you and I appreciate you having me. I appreciate the opportunity to share some of this with people and it is beautiful speaking to you as well, Bindi. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Ethical Evolution podcast. If you're an ethical business owner, change maker or holistic healer who's determined to make a change in the world and you need support to spread your message, visit ethicalchangeagency.com to collaborate. Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an Electricast production. Hey, it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys, the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool. 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys. Electric acid.